You're listening to Funshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm talking with Carl Bradshaw, a partner in the law firm Goodwin's Private Equity Group. Carl is based in London and has advised European, American and Asian private equity sponsors on a wide range of transactions, including cross-border LBOs, public-to-privates, co-investments and special situations. We talked today about deal appetite going into the second quarter of 2021, new deal-making processes and the rise of the Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Carl, welcome to Funshack. It's mid-March and restrictions are slowly thawing away in Europe, fairly slowly in the UK though. How are you seeing the uh, private equity market from a transaction perspective and how would you characterise sentiment at the moment? Yeah, so Ross, we've been sort of in this state, um, however you wish to describe it, um, for, for nearly a year now. The, the conclusion that we can say is that you know the, the industry is certainly resilient, it's certainly adaptable. Um, yes, absolutely, there was a rush this time last year for people to focus on keeping their people safe and um, you, you know wrapping up their portfolio companies, frankly, to all the things that were going on, making sure they had enough liquidity to survive um, initial shutdowns and lockdowns. Um, but very quickly, people learned to operate in this environment, whether that was you know, using technology to get deals done, to meet people, to talk and look and evaluate, um, or, or, or just um, in terms of actually finding opportunities. And um, you know, it, w- within months, we were back into transactional activity, uh, c- certainly in, in, in the middle market where um, you had both a combination of processes that had been put on hold that were sort of pushed through and were ready to, to come to market either just to to close off remaining elements or you know from start start to finish we saw that and then you had a, a sort of new wave of, of deal activity where um, it was either very technology focused or very healthcare focused um, and that has really sustained itself through to through to now um, I think obviously in in some sectors there's there's been a pause and people are waiting to see what uh, what the vaccine does, what the um, government support measures do, and, and when and how they get withdrawn in order in order to assess um, sort of investment appetite. And obviously we need to see how consumers react, you know, to to those me- measures as well. Um, but certainly in certain sectors. The, the market's heating up and, um, and and we're seeing pretty buoyant um, buyout activity, whether that's funded through equity checks, you know, from, from the sponsor directly or, or backed up with debt either coming in from from still still the banks, but increasingly so from the credit funds. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's certainly there to be seen. And in, in some cases, um, we're seeing some, some really competitive situations for for the assets in the sectors I mentioned that, you know, people want to, to deploy capital into it. Those sectors presumably being tech, healthcare, anything I'm missing in terms of buoyancy? Yeah, I think, I think they, those are it, certainly in the, as you get into the middle market and, and above, um, at the lower end, you're seeing some life science, um, you know, as a variation on the, on the healthcare theme. Um, and even even within technology, I think it's it's not everything. Not everyone's sort of 
pouring money into driverless cars. I think there's there's been some quite um, quite a lot of thinking has been done on what segments are going to be most robust and have proven themselves most robust through through this period. So enterprise software, you know, data analytics, um, things of that nature are certainly still uh, still very popular with with PE sponsors. It's increasingly difficult to think of tech really as a sector insofar as pretty much every business has, is having to deal with some kind of tech-enabled conundrum right now. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's often been a hesitancy for private equity to, um, to market themselves as being into the tech sector, right? Um, I think people, in, investors into PE funds might be a little bit scared off by some of the, the very high valuations that you see in the tech sector. Um, and whether that growth um, of businesses that you, you have the opportunity to invest into is going to be sustainable. Um, you know, other, the, the, there's other features of the tech sector, whether it's the dynamics with founders and entrepreneurs or, um, you know, the, the, the lack of the excellence of process that PE has really become accustomed to um, that has steered uh, people traditionally away from deploying lots of private equity capital in, into that sector. But um, you're, you're right. I think it's, it, it would be inaccurate to just group, group all of the um, different segments in, in the same bucket. And um, I think private equity has come around to the idea that, yes, technology is in all parts of our life and tech-enabled businesses need uh, need to sort of find capital in order to grow in order to survive in you know the the most dynamic areas of the economy today so um yes there's more and and also i guess there's been some good um good examples of success in that area whether you know it's vista or tom bravo or hg for the uk you know people have gone there have taken the plunge in, and done really well out of it so so certainly there's no uh, there's not the, the same hesitancy as there may have been 10 years ago to, to invest in that area. Yeah, it's, it's strange given that their venture capital cousins live and breathe technology. I, th I think Goodwins sometimes operates at the intersection of venture capital and private equity, from what I've read. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, we, we see that as our sort of strategic priority is to be as close to those two worlds as possible because we're only seeing convergence. Um, and not divergence. And I think the, the PEs are moving down into that space, one to just get smarter on technology and the, the pace at which it is um, you know, transform, transforming business. And they, they want to get an early, early look. Um, two, I think the, the you know, PE exits or, or venture capital backed businesses exiting for PE is just becoming more and more common. And um, I think even, even um, you know, in 2020, you sort of doubled on the amount of PE exits that were there the year before. So it, it is an area that people see that the opportunity. And I think getting, getting smarter is, is definitely something that is high on the, the agenda of our clients. Um, for, for Goodwin, we just see it as part of the lifecycle model that we've tried to build around companies from a very early stage through all the way to where they're going through a strategic process, be that M&A um, selling out to PE or, or going through the, to the public markets. Going back to uh, 
lockdowns, has anything changed in terms of the process of doing deals in the last year that you think possibly might endure um, in, the, in the longer run? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the obvious answer to that is travel. I think people will get on fewer planes um, and meet in person on a, on a less frequent basis. I don't think it will go all together. There's definitely a lot to be said for, uh, I guess, both the, both the, um, the engagement that needs to be had between a management team and its potential new sponsor um, to, to get those people together is going to continue to be important. And I think you know, pe people uh, that, I, that I talk to on the investor side are just you know, itching at the opportunity to get in a room and have those conversations with, um, with their management teams or prospective management teams. I think on the advisory side, uh, whilst we've been operating efficiently through you know, remotely and through screens, um, definitely when it comes to, to getting things done, we would see some some speed gains and just general sort of um, ability to get things over the over the line by being in the same in the same room with each mm -hmm. other. So I, I do see that coming back, but certainly the use of technology both on the outside in diligence that begins early and has been happening from people's bedrooms or studies, you know, for for the last year. That's that's definitely going to endure. Um, and, and, and was already the case, to be honest, there was a, a lot of technology starting to get deployed in, whether that's through data rooms, whether that's through, um, you know, the, the legal technology we use to sort of sift through contracts and spit out um, findings. I think that that has accelerated over this process. And, and so we'll certainly see, see that remain. Um, whether the remote, uh, well, I've heard of virtual drones being used to do physical inspections. And obviously that, that saves some costs. And if you're not fully committed on doing the deal, you might, you might think about that. But I think get, getting people together and on, on the ground uh, is probably gonna come back as, as soon as it can. Yeah, it's funny because most people talk of technology in terms of efficiency gains, but I guess in something like, you know, the, the classic late night deal negotiation, high, it's a highly collaborative, exercise I assume and just being with people is probably preferable maybe even less tiring even if it is late at night yeah I think yeah there's the let's not forget the psychological aspect of doing a very demanding um, job on it on a deal um, yes absolutely do, doing it physically in person with others helps um, but yes it, just just getting through that process I think what we've seen is whilst as as well thought through and as structured as they possibly can be in this very uncertain um, environment there they are generally taking longer just to to execute um and getting you know getting the answer from someone who's not not in the room will just take extra time and then inputting that to a conversation that's moved on three or four paces uh, can, can be difficult so Yes, I think that there's merit to getting people together, certainly from, from our perspective as a, you know, we're very much an apprenticeship culture. So having people around from the, the outset of their careers that they can learn and see how these things are happening, I think is, is an important aspect as well. Has anything changed in terms of uh, contracting um, given the advent of lockdowns? I'm thinking, you know, provisions to give uh, buyers assurances, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, so there, there's a few sort of pieces of that. I guess um, initially there was great concern about, well, are you know the certainty of a deal actually happening? So if you had the leverage on the on the buy side, um, you would want you know potential outs to the deal if the lockdown or some sort of pandemic related aspect um, made for a materially different investment proposition than the one you thought you were signing up to three months earlier. Um, and so certainly those conversations have been had. I would say by and large, because the market is still very much, you know, lots of capital to deploy, low interest rate environment, um, sellers are invariably resisting those sort of um, deal uncertainties that, um, you know, that, that, that give the buyer the right to walk away or renegotiate the deal. So that, that's definitely one aspect that there's been more conversations around. And it very, very much turns on the, the sort of dynamic of a buyer and seller in any given situation. I think then in terms of due diligence, you're, um, you're seeing more scrutiny placed, not just on um, the underlying sort of business and how compliant it's been during this period, whether that's the health and safety aspect of how it's looked after its people or whether it's made use of government support measures, you know, furlough schemes, deferral of taxes, um, government loans in some instances. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of sensitivity to make sure businesses got that right or where they haven't, where, where any remedy can be, um, can be pursued. And, um, and then as, aside, aside from that, I think investors are looking through these businesses now to their end customers. Right. So it's instead of just supply, supply chain continuity, which has always been important, but come under um, under the spotlight in the last 12 months, people are saying, well, you know, is that supplier or is that customer? What, what's their solvency situation? Are they going to be able to continue? Can we get access to that information and, and diligence it and evaluate it as part of this um, in, entire cycle? So, uh, yes, there, there's been a number of changes. But at the same time, it's very sector specific. I think in the, where there's competition for assets, we're seeing very similar treatment given to businesses. You know, we will look at the financials, we'll kick, kick the tires on the accounts. We, we will take a, um, a large amount of comfort from reinvestment on the part of the management team into the new deal. We will rely on insurance as far as possible and we will present in a competitive auction a very clean contract that um, you know the sellers are not going to have to do much thinking about as to whether it's within within the level of comfort or not. So uh, yes, in in some circumstances the pandemic has changed terms, but uh, in in other ways, no, you know we're we're very much in similar territory of of getting deals done on on a seller favourable basis. In addition to traditional private equity deals, you've got fair bit of experience in uh, the distressed market corporate distressed deals are you are you seeing or do you anticipate uh, an uptick or an increase in that kind of transaction um yeah so uh, for, for me those type of deals whether that's you know out and out distress or um a special opportunity special situation for um private capital to be deployed into it's just another type of private equity deal. It may find its way into a different um, 
area of the capital structure, but very much we're using similar sort of private equity um, mindset and, and deal technology to, to get the deal done. Um, I think the, the latest on the market is that actually there's not a ton of activity right now. Um, so in 2020, we probably saw cases uh, that had been in a bad state of affairs, you know, financially distressed or underperforming for some period of time prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic was the, the final straw. Um, certainly, you know, retail, casual dining um, has, has had a very tough time in the last 12 months. And we've seen some of that. So we, we acted on the Kate restaurant um, loan to own restructuring where the lenders took control. And recently we just closed the Clark's um, shoes transaction where um, Asian, Asian private equity invested into you know, an iconic British brand. So we've seen some of it, but I think that all came out of a relatively small window last year of those um, sort of existing cases that needed support. I think by and large, um, a lot of businesses have got by to this point through the government support measures, whether that's you know loans or, or just the fact that business rates haven't been there um, or, or at the same levels as, as, as they were previously. So uh, I think we're waiting to see. I think the expectation is absolutely there will be a further wave of, um, of distressed businesses. Whether they make it through this difficult period or not uh, remains to be seen. I think there's the there's a race now between getting the vaccine out, getting consumer confidence to the level it needs to be to restore those businesses to somewhere near where they were previously. You know, are people going to all of a sudden June go out and buy things, go out and eat um, in, in the places um, where, where they used to. Um, and offset against, well, where is the cash coming from to sort of reboot the working capital of these businesses, right? So they have used the treasure chest to, to get through this period. In order to go forward and compete, they're going to need um, likely injections of capital. Now, in some cases, that may come from existing shareholders who have deep pockets. In other cases, they may turn to the public markets where currently there is good appetite to put money to work. Um, but in, in many cases, I think they, they will turn to you know, private credit, private equity, alternative investing. Um, and, and certainly that's something we're, we're building up for um, and hope to, hope to, you know, in the, in the nicest possible way, um, be well prepared to fight, find capital solutions for these businesses um, to take them forward. Well, that's a perfect segue because I did want to ask you about SPACs which is obviously all the rage, uh, but really only in the US to a great degree. Um, but last year was huge and this year um, is even bigger um, pro rata. Um, do you have any views on the prospects for special acquisition vehicles? We're following it really closely. I mean, our, our teams in the US are absolutely inundated with, um, with SPAC uh, instructions and inquiries. Um, and just to to kind of break that down a little bit. These are essentially, well, they're, they're called in the US, these blank check companies. So they're put together uh, by a management team or a sponsor. 
um, effectively as a shell company that is then put to the public market. Investors pour money into these vehicles and then the, the vehicle goes out and finds a, a target, a, a private um, company that it then takes to the public market. So it's almost like a reverse IPO for those private companies. Um, and it, it's attractive to investors because they almost get a sort of single purpose private equity vehicle, right? It's something they can back if they know the sponsor, they know the management team, um, they can put money towards it. And then, you know, they, they back these, uh, these management teams and sponsors to go out and find a, a great private company. And, and it's also attractive sometimes to, to those private companies looking to raise finance either, you know, to fund its, its next stage of growth. Um, because it takes the what is otherwise seen as an arduous listing IPO process out of the equation and they only have to do one negotiation with the SPAC management team or the, or the sponsor. So it, it does bring that execution advantage, I think, for, for a go public strategy. Um, we haven't seen all that much of them in the UK. Um, they have existed. I mean, there's businesses like the... Um, the engineering giant Melrose. That was a SPAC from 2003. So they, they are around, but you know, on a, um, a compara comparable basis. So in the US, the, there's something like 223 SPACs listed this year already. And in the UK, there were four all of last year. And you know, a grand total of 300 million was, was raised through that process. It, it, in the UK, so there's a huge disparity, and um, I think there is definitely an effort on the part of um, London Stock Exchange and other sort of market intermediaries to look at that and assess. You know, are are we missing out on this opportunity? Um, and I think they're they're coming under pressure because uh, you're seeing homegrown talent that. Would otherwise, you know, potentially IPO in the UK or other European markets, um, either look instead to the US, um, and and potentially even be be not the victim but the target of these US raised SPACs, right? So it's it's effectively investment opportunity going into the North American capital markets instead of staying staying in Europe. Um, and I think there's two two particular pressure points. There's, um, and, and, it, and it all comes down to the, the nuances between the, the UK capital markets regime and which is similar in some respects um, elsewhere in Europe and what they currently have it in the US. So one of these um, is the redemption feature. So in, in the US, you, you as an investor put your money into this SPAC. The SPAC goes out and finds a target and then comes back to the shareholders and says, do you want to? Do you want us to make this acquisition or not? And so it's put to a vote. At that at that time, you can either vote no or vote yes. Um, but you can also, uh, you know, redeem your investment. So if if you lose the vote, you're still not locked in, and you can get your money out, and someone else who likes that that investment um, can can come in, in in your place. So there's that advantage. There's that kind of transparency over the the acquisition. Um, and the liquidity that, that, that you get through that process. And then the other um, 
the other feature of the, the UK regime is that because it's considered as a reverse listing, effectively at the time the SPAC makes the acquisition or announces the acquisition, um, the shares in that SPAC are suspended for trading. Um, and they're suspended until a prospectus on the deal is, is published. And there's no deadline for that. So we still have 2017 rate SPACs that the prospectus didn't, you know, have, hasn't been done and that deadline's not been, um, or that deliverable ha hasn't been met. So it, it does create that uncertainty for investors, which I think, you know, looking at it objectively um, means, you know, if, if you had the choice, would you prefer the US model or, or the current UK model? I think, you know, people are voting with their feet and, and investing into the, into the US SPACs. I mean, that, that particular feature is there for investor protection. I think when the announcement's made, there can be a lot of volatility in share price. And so having that suspension for a short period of time may make some sense, but, um, mm. but it's certainly something that, that people are looking into, you know, is, is a reform needed? Um, there was a review conducted recently by Lord Hill and delivered to the government, government at the start of the month that really looked into all, all of those things as a, as a sort of holistic UK listing review. Um, and certainly those two features were, were underlined as the, as the things that were probably most, most in need of some sort of reform in order to um, increase SPAC activity in, in the UK. And, and the threat is not just coming from um, the US, I think now you'll start to see European markets moving pretty quickly in it. I would say at, at the current rate, you know, by the end of this year, we could see much more activity in, in the European markets on that front. Any, anyone's in particular? So Amsterdam, I think, has made noises in the last few weeks where they are readying themselves to, to you know, make, make a viable and attractive destination for, for SPACs, to be, SPACs to be raised. So if I understand you correctly, it sounds like the, the, the Americans with their redemption system has created kind of a, a market-based optionality for investors, whereas in the UK, you have more of a regulatory-based freeze on everything. And it, is that a reasonable interpretation? Yeah, that, that, that's ex exactly right. I think it's the, the additional liquidity, but also the 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 involvement in that acquisition decision almost that you get in the US that you're not seeing currently here in, in the UK. Um, you know, the, the SPAC has the option to put the acquisition to a vote, but it's not a regulatory requirement in the same way as it is, is in the US. Um, yeah, the, the, that is a key distinction. Yeah, it's, I find it fascinating because, I mean, obviously the number of public companies has been falling for a very long time. And presumably this is going to put that into into reverse and it must say something about i mean you said at the start where you implied at the start i think it's to some degree uh, an arbitrage against the cumbersome nature of ipo processes would you say yeah i think th there's definitely a benefit to the to the company not having to go through that ipo do the roadshows with multiple investors you know in that sort of preparatory stage and just go straight from A to B, you know, suddenly be a public company, having negotiated a, a deal in a set of terms with, um, you know, with, with a sponsor. I think that's, that's very attractive for companies. Tell us a little bit about Goodwins and, and your personal aspirations for uh, activity in, 
in private equity in the kind of near or me medium term? What would you like to see happen and what do you want to get involved in? Um, so Goodwin's been around in Europe um, for just under 10 years, but we're originally a US headquartered firm. Um, we've grown internationally into Europe and, and across into Asia, um, about 1,300 lawyers uh, in total. And really, we have a very focused strategy. So we're trying to play in the most dynamic areas of the economy. Private equity is absolutely core to that strategy alongside technology, life science, real estate and financial institutions. And, um, you know, we've, we've scaled out um, incredibly quickly in the last year within private equity in, in London in particular. So um, we've now got a partner bench of about 10 partners, associates, um, another, another 20. Um, and we're trying to be deep, not just in that transactional capability, but across all areas that touch the, the private equity ecosystem. So we've got one of the largest fund formation teams in the market. We're building out in tax, we're building out in debt. Uh, we're building out in restructuring so we can really be that go-to sort of destination firm for complex um, premium private equity work. Carl, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much for, for your insights this morning. Thanks, Ross. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.